This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Wednesday. We're doing GI questions. Daphna, how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm excited to ask you this question. <laughs> Whatever floats your boat. Go ahead. <laughs> because this is not something we see very commonly. And then when you get this on the test, you're like, gosh darn it. <laughs> Why? Mm-hmm. Um, this question number nine. A one-month-old infant who was born full-term has biphasic strider that worsens with crying. Uh, He's well-appearing and afebrile. The chest radiograph shows a normal cardiothymic silhouette. Bronchoscopy reveals a large mass compressing the trachea above and below the glottis. A CT scan of the neck and chest reveal a cystic mass in the superior mediastinum. And you're like, what is this? But the mass is surgically removed and is determined by pathology to be an esophageal duplication cyst. In addition to airway obstruction and respiratory compromise, which of the following is another potential complication of an esophageal duplication cyst? A. Acid secretion by gastric epithelium leading to ulceration and erosion into contiguous structures. B. Dysphagia and epigastric pain. C, malignant transformation. D, none of the above. Or E, all of the above. Okay. Well, that's not too bad. No. Because at the end, it's not too bad. Because it tells you what it is, luckily. Because when I see this question, I'm like, I don't know much about esophageal duplication (laughs) cysts. I know a few things. I know that they cause to have like respiratory issues. And I know that they cause uh, feeding issues. And I know that it's just more esophagus. So you get more more uh you have more uh acid uh, secretions mm-hmm. so um technically it's like okay that's the only things i know and then the question was asking exactly that um so acid secretion by the gastric epithelium yes i know that and dysphagia and epigastric pain yes i know that c malignant transformation i remember vaguely that i didn't remember but i got a and b checked off so I went with E, all of the above. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this is a good question for like test taking strategy. Like you're short on time or you got to the question stem and it's like long and you're starting to panic. I think, I think the best thing to do is like look at the last line of the question. Like what is the actual question? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you're spending a lot of time trying to make the diagnosis when they often give you the diagnosis. They're going to give it to you. That's right. Because making the diagnosis is um, a more basic skill than d- determining what the next step is. So often they give you the diagnosis. So if you see a long question stem, read the actual question, which is the last sentence first and then work your way backwards looking for the buzzwords that might be helpful so you're right the question was all of the above and you could easily throw out none of the above because you knew some of the questions some of the answers were correct and if you got two correct answers then you knew it was going to be all of the above 
But as a reminder, esophageal duplication cysts are rare congenital abnormalities occurring in 1 in 8,200 births. Please be specific, actually. These cysts result from foregut budding in early embryonic life. They can be spherical or tubular uh, cells. They, they can contain smooth muscle, skeletal muscle, columnar, squamous, or gastric epithelium, or a combination of the above. Most affected infants are asymptomatic, and the diagnosis is made incidentally, with 22% presenting before the age of two years. The rest tend to have a, a delayed um, diagnosis. Those with symptoms usually have respiratory problems related to airway obstruction. Others may have the dysphagia and epigastric pain uh, as described. If esophageal duplication cysts are not removed, they can undergo malignant transformation. If they contain gastric epithelium, they may produce acid, and acid production may cause ulceration and erosion into neighboring structures. Resection is the definitive treatment with removal of intrathoracic cysts, presenting potential risk to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. So that easily could have been another question that this baby underwent surgery um, and then had symptoms of a laryngeal nerve um, transection. The other thing I thought was important about this question that we can review is about um, the types of strider. Mm -hmm. So they noted that this patient had um, biphasic strider. Um, which again, they gave us the diagnosis, but had they not given us the diagnosis, uh, biphasic strider suggests a glottic or subglottic lesion. Generally, inspiratory strider suggests airway obstruction above the glottis, um, while an expiratory strider tends to indicate obstruction in the lower trachea. That's actually very helpful. Thank you for doing that. No problem. All right, buddy, your turn. Mm -hmm. Question 10. Uh, yeah, we're making our way there. That's not so bad. <laughs> you have a two-week-old, former 29-week gestational age infant that develops feeding intolerance and abdominal distension. Oh, is it mm, neck? Again. Isn't that, like, that should be the t-shirt, Daphna. Is it neck? Is it neck? <laughs> I think it should be a, a t-shirt. We're should always we like, it? this is like on our mind all the time. Is it neck? Yeah. But it could, it could easily be, is it sepsis, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, maybe that could be the front should be could be neck the back should be could be sepsis <laughs> and then there could be like an inside thing is this could be both all could right be both. <laughs> could be both okay so you have a two week old 29 weeker develops feeding intolerance abdominal distension radiographic findings demonstrate pneumatosis intestinalis free abdominal intra-abdominal air which is consistent with neck there you go. They give it to you, as mm -hmm. you said. Now, the pediatric surgeon recommends laparotomy while obtaining consent for the procedure. The parent asks the surgeon about potential complication. Which of the following statement is true? Mm. Choice A, laparotomy has been shown to have lower morbidity and mortality rates compared to primary peritoneal drain placement for the surgical management of neck. Choice B, Medically and surgically managed patients with neck have similar long-term neurodevelopmental outcome. Choice C, recurrent neck occurs in about 25% of cases. Choice D, the mortality rates of surgical neck is greatest if the infant has a lower gestational age. The last 
possible choices choice E. The most common delayed complication of neck is the formation of an intestinal stricture involving the right colon. That's a hard one, buddy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I, <clears throat> there are a few questions that I, the few answers that I thought could be the answer. Um, but luckily, there's one answer that I know is the right answer. I was so glad to get it. That's why you just have to get through the get through all the answer choices because one of them will just ring a bell, and you're like, that has to be it. Uh, so, you're right. I see it now. Yeah. There's like really one that stands out. You're right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> so the it's about the mortality rate being lower, uh, being higher in infants of lower gestational age. That's probably true for both surgical and medical neck because the babies with lower gestational age just have the highest mortality. That's true yeah. almost for every pathology. So thankfully that answer was there. Yeah. So I, I'll go with D. Fine. So yes. Um, but I think the other answers are really important to review. Tricky. Yeah, yeah because they're tricky and they like to test on this uh, these things. Yeah, so neck has significant uh, mortality, morbidities. Uh, interestingly enough, stricture formation is the most common delayed complication after recovery from acute neck and occurs in both medically and surgically managed patients. Um, what was the, what, there was an answer choice, right? Yeah, but they gave a location. Ah, uh, that's right. Up to 36% of affected infants may develop a stricture with the majority occurring in the left colon, right. not the right colon. Correct, I should say. Ah, oh, that's tricky. That was really tricky. Very tricky. Because you know that stricture formation is, I mean, that could be a right answer, right? Yeah, and more common, right? We said this on the podcast, more common in the medical, medically treated than the surgically treated. Uh, the overall incidence of recurrence of neck is approximately 6%. Uh, mm -hmm. Most recurrences can be managed medically, while patients who have medically managed neck have similar neurodimental and growth outcomes compared to patients Without neck, surgical neck is mm -hmm. definitely a hit when it comes to long-term outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, however, similar rates of morbidity and mortality have been shown with patients who receive laparotomy or primary peritoneal drain placement for the management of neck. The mortality rate of surgical neck is dependent upon the severity of the disease and is greatest in infants of lower gestational age. Um, okay, I think we have time for one more. Yeah, yeah, please. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, question 11. An emphalocele is a congenital abdominal wall defect resulting from incomplete body wall folding during embryogenesis. You love embryology. <laughs> that's, a, that's a strong statement. That's not... Uh, <laughs> uh, which of the following away. statements is false? I think these are harder than which of the following statements is true. So which of the following statements is false? A, approximately 10% of infants with emphalocele will have also will also have gigantism, macroglossia, and hypoglycemia secondary to pancreatic hyperplasia. B, associated genes include pituitary homeobox 2, insulin-like growth factor 2, cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor 1C, and the MTHR <laughs> gene polymorphism. Um, Methylene tetrahydrofolate, right? Methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene polymorphism. It wasn't as hard as I thought. It was no. Be. C, 
Congenital anomalies are noted in 50% to 70% of patients with an emphalocele. D, the incidence of emphalocele is 1 to 3 per 10,000 live births. Or E, the presence of an emphalocele is associated with young maternal age. And you get down on your knees and you thank the gods for that last answer <laughs> choice, right? That's right. That's right. Because yeah, this is I mean, like a buzz a thing that you should just It's almost a memory. buzz. Yeah, it's yeah. almost a buzz because I think you, you often study uh, gastroschisis with emphalocele. You sort of do the comparison. That's right. And one of the big things that they compare well is that, or they, com they compare poorly, I guess, if you want to say, is that gastroschisis comes in mm -hmm. for mothers of, with a young age and not an emphalocele. So while you may be wondering whether the incidence is truly one per 10,000, right. you, you know for sure that young maternal age uh, abdominal wall defects usually points to gastroschisis, not emphalocele. So I'll let you tell us about these other answer choices, but E uh, is the answer. Yeah, and so this is one where you're like, you're thinking about the individual genes and you're like, what am I going to do? Just read all the answer choices first before you get totally end. overwhelmed. Just read them all first. But you're right, gastroschisis is commonly associated with mothers of young age, whereas um, the emphalocele is associated with advanced maternal age. So emphalocele is a midline defect characterized by eviscerated abdominal contents, typically covered by a protective sac. Um, approximately 30% of affected infants have an abnormal karyotype, including trisomy 13, 18, and 21. So one-third of babies with emphalocele have an abnormal uh, karyotype, and trisomies are, are very common. Approximately 50 to 70% of affected patients have associated congenital anomalies, so you should be looking for other anomalies, including 10% of cases have Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, characterized by emphalocele, gigantism, macroglossia, and hypoglycemia secondary to pancreatic hyperplasia. And they love to test on Beckwith-Wiedemann. They just know Beckwith-Wiedemann cold. Several genes, including pituitary homeobox 2, insulin-like growth factor 2, cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor 1C, and a methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene polymorphism. If you're curious, it's 677C-T, have been associated with emphalocele. However, their roles in the pathogenesis remains unclear. Thank you very much. Thank I you. Will see you tomorrow, Daphna. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.